book of Jude. Our text today is Jude verses 3 through 7. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation unto Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are a good and wise king. Without you, we would be lost to our own pride and our lusts and our self-deception. Without your death and resurrection, we would remain the slaves of sin and death. We would have no hope of healing, no hope of deliverance. But you have taken our lives for your own. You have cleansed us. You have made us new, and you have made us one. Lord, as we come to your word today, help us. Help us to hear these words of Jude with ready hearts. Amen. If you trace the story of the Bible from start to finish, that story makes it clear that Satan, the enemy, wages war on God's glory and his purposes. This began in the Garden of Eden where he tempted Adam and Eve and corrupted the human race. And you can trace it all the way to the end of the story in the book of Revelation, which has yet to take place, where he leads the human race, the world, in a unified rebellion against God. This rebellion against God is played out all over the pages of human history. Satan hates the human race because we are made in God's image and we are his special objects of affection. We are his special creation. Satan hates the church because we are those of the human race who have been restored to him, are loved by him, and he attacks God's people to corrupt and destroy what God loves and to steal God's glory. So from the outside of the church, the church always faces threats, false religions, cults, hedonism, and persecution. But the greatest threat to Jesus' church has not come from outside the church, but from within it. 
For example, one threat from within the church is the threat of division. Disunity among God's people can consume the church. It can destroy our testimony in the world. That's why Jesus himself prayed so earnestly that we as his followers would be one as he and the Father are one. It's why there are so many other exhortations in the New Testament to love one another, to live at peace with one another. Another grave danger is worldliness, affluence, the love of the things of this life. A church that is immersed in materialism, entertainment, sexual immorality, preoccupation with all of these things will look so much like the world that no one will know the difference. If worldliness grows from within the church, we are no longer light, we are no longer salt. But the greatest threat to God's people is without doubt false teaching. And in fact, it is often false teaching that produces division in the church. It is false teaching that leads the church into worldliness, particularly greed and sexual immorality. And the thing about false teaching, one of the reasons it is so powerful and so dangerous is that false teaching sounds like Christianity. That is the enemy's goal, is that it sounds right, it sounds biblical. This is why the New Testament is filled with warnings about false teachers and teaching. Look at some of these passages. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 and verses 6 and 7. But understand this, that in the last days there will come those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never, uh, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is a description of false teachers that take advantage of vulnerable people, women in particular. Speaks to the... the partnership between false teaching and sexual immorality. Paul warns Titus in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 11 and verse 16, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These are those who preach and claim to love God, but are really after money, after gain. Second Peter 2.1, Peter says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. You notice in each of these, there is a creeping, 
a deceit, a secretly. False teachers don't announce themselves as false teachers. They pose, they masquerade. Both Jesus and Paul called these liars, deceivers, and false teachers wolves. Wolves in sheep's clothing. And it's an earnest response to such false teachers that Jude writes this letter. Not to elders, even though elders have a special responsibility to be on guard for the flock. Jude writes to the church. Jude writes to all Christians. And he calls us all to contend for the faith. This is the key to Jude's letter. It is his main point that we as God's people contend. Now, the word contend is a strong word. It was used mostly in the context of athletic competition. Its root is the root where we get the word agonize. It was athletic competition between two opponents. Sometimes it was used in the realm of warfare to describe two commanders attempting to outwit each other on the battlefield. It's also used to describe the competition of public debate, point-counterpoint. So the word, though it, it has this physical imagery to it of agonizing, this competition wrestling, it also is a metaphor for something bigger than just physical combat. It speaks of strategy and a, a competition of wits as well. And Jude isn't calling us to become combative and argumentative for the sake of being argumentative or obnoxious. He's calling us to hold our ground to remain steadfast, to not be deceived, to not be a victim. When he says contend for the faith, he is calling us to, to not give in, to not move, not be deceived. So to contend is to engage false teaching by exposing it. Jude will go on to unveil false teachers' doom here, to unmask their identity, and to explain some means of countering the damage that they can do in the church. But for this morning, I want to ask this question. How is it that we can answer Jude's call? How can we answer his call to contend? Well, to answer it, first of all, we have to act. To answer Jude's call to contend, we must act. Verse 3, Jude is urgent, and he wants us to feel his urgency, and a number of things here demonstrate this. For one thing, Jude says he had actually planned to write another letter, but he ends up writing this one. He says, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. In other words, Jude had originally planned to sit down and to write a letter unpacking some of the riches of the gospel, to write a letter that would explain the truths of Christian teaching, much like we find in other places in the New Testament, other letters. 
But Jude says, it was necessary for me to write this letter, meaning he was under constraint. Jude felt compelled by the danger that he sees. This word appeal is sometimes translated exhort or urge or sometimes even plead. For example, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I entreat, I urge Euodia and Syntyche, these two ladies in the church of Philippi, I urge them to agree in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, finally then we ask and urge you that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, do so more and more. So this, this appealing, this urging is, is something that comes from someone like a coach, It's that kind of thing. It's someone who spurs you on, who gets down in your face, who gets beneath you or behind you and pushes you, reasons with you, shows you why. The word appeal compels action in response to truth. And I think the New Testament writers especially use it when there is the possibility that we might fail to make the connection, to keep us from slipping into apathy, drifting off. They urge us. Jude's appeal, then, is this whole letter. When he says, I found it necessary to write to you, to appeal to you, he's saying this whole letter is an urgent exhortation. So act. If you've been napping on the couch, get up. If you've been thinking everything is okay, be on guard. Don't be blindsided. Jude is stirring us to action. And you cannot contend if you're apathetic. You cannot contend if you are distracted And you cannot contend if you are naive. You can't contend if you don't know the scriptures. You at least have to act. We can't be caught napping. So to answer Jude's call then to contend, the first thing to do is to act. Secondly, we have to know what's at stake. We have to know what's at stake. What is it that we're contending for? Verse three, the faith. We're contending for the faith. Now, this is, at the very least, I'm gonna talk about this here. It is, at the very least, the body of truth and teaching that make up the Christian faith, the gospel. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, 
of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. This is a beautiful picture of the divine gospel, God's gospel, being communicated to a vessel, an apostle, who then proclaims it, that is then received, a message, a body of teaching, truth. And then those who have received it stand in it, not moving in and out of it, not trying then to see if it really squares up with other things, but standing in it and being saved. Because there's a condition. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, So, from the street level, from our experience as people, it is possible to walk away from the faith. It's possible from a street level, and we we know this from experience because we've seen people do it, people that we know, people that we love sometimes, who are going along in their Christian life and the faith, and all of a sudden, they walk away. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there is a kind of belief, a kind of faith that is empty in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, and he's not going to say everything that he delivered, but of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. And then he goes on to list Jesus' appearances after he had risen from the dead. So you, you've got to understand, though, that the faith is not just information. It isn't just this fact and this fact. The faith is not just what we believe, in other words, a content, a doctrinal statement, a creed. The faith, listen, I think this is the way we ought to understand it, okay? The faith is a way of life. It's a way of life. And you can't have a way of life, you can't have the faith without a body of truth. But that body of truth is instruction, and you can't have the faith a way of life without living according to that body of truth. Again, what is one of our core commitments as a church body? Obey the truth. We recognize that we have the truth. We have the faith, the content, the doctrine, but we have to live accordingly. We have to obey it. The relationship between doctrine, belief, and behavior is very much like the relationship between our bodies and our souls. Now, follow me here. We understand that we are both material, that we have bodies, physical bodies, and that we have an immaterial part, a spirit or a soul. And in fact, for those two things to be separated, we call that what? Dying. That's what death is. We know that just because we die 
that our spirit or our soul is not dead or gone. That's eternal. Know this, your body is also eternal. It just has to be changed. This body that we know in this life has to die. So we understand that we are both. And yet we also understand that we are whole people. And what I mean by that is that our body and our spirit make up a person. We are each a person. So what the body experiences affects the spirit, doesn't it? I know this is true for myself when I get hungry or when I get exhausted or when I get overly hot or I'm sitting in traffic. I get irritable. I become cranky. And it doesn't matter sometimes if I'm really hungry. It doesn't matter if I've spent all day reading my Bible. I still will tend to be short-tempered. Now, it's still sin. It's not saying that's not sin because, oh, well, I'm hungry. What I am saying is that they affect one another. If I'm super exhausted and tired, same story. Likewise, the soul, experience, uh, the soul experiences things that affect the body. I might be getting plenty of sleep. I might have regular meals. I might be taking my multivitamins. And if something horrible in life happens and I am brought down by sadness, I can lose my appetite. I might be up and not able to sleep, or just the opposite, I might get depressed and crawl into bed and not want to get out of it. Sadness can take away appetite. Anxiety can cause ulcers. Proverbs 17.22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. What's he saying? He's making this connection, right? Solomon is making this connection in Proverbs. Saying that who we are, our physical bodies can affect the soul and the soul can affect the body. In the same way, watch, in the same way belief and behavior come together to form a way of life. This is the faith. So sometimes we say, and I've even said this sometimes, what we believe affects how we live. And so over here, how we live will really say what we believe. I'm not even sure that analogy is, is as accurate as saying that you can't divide them like that. It's not just a cause and effect. There is a holistic uh, thing going on here in which what we believe and how we live is really all the same thing. Even if we can talk about them separately, like we can talk about our bodies and our souls. This is a way of life. This is the faith. So contending for the faith is not just winning theological arguments. It is to fight for a way of life. How we live. This way of life called the faith, Jude says, is once for all delivered to the saints. This is a rich phrase. And here's what it means. First of all, it shows us that the faith is of divine origin. It was delivered to us. We didn't come up with it. 
We didn't create it. It was delivered. So whenever you see these kinds of terms, it was delivered, or like we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, we received it. It means it has come from God. It comes with his authority. And it has been passed on. It has been handed down to us through teaching, proclamation, and then writing. That's what our Bible is. It is what has been delivered. It is an established body of instruction. And it began for the church in its first days. You remember in Acts chapter 2, what was one of the things that the church was doing? Right after Peter had preached the gospel, 3,000 people were baptized, what immediately did the church begin to do? Sit under the apostles' teaching. That's what was going on. The faith was being delivered and received. It also means that it is complete, once for all delivered. It's not to be added to. It is not to be subtracted from. We may gain greater understanding or insight of what is revealed, but we aren't receiving new revelation. It is sufficient. It is sufficient. This is so important because false teaching will very often, not always, but very often will add things or subtract things in addition to twisting what is already revealed. Jude is saying, contend for the faith, that which has been divinely revealed and delivered and received. Fight for that, that way of life. So watch out for claims that violate its teaching or twist its teaching. Watch out for claims of new enlightenment, for additions because the gospel is not sufficient, or subtractions that say, oh, that doesn't apply to us. What's at stake then is the gospel. Know what's at stake. It's the gospel. It is the faith. That is a way of life that pleases God. It is this established body of instruction that is perverted by false teaching. And it's why the faith, once delivered, is so crucial to contend for because eternity depends on it. The faith and your relationship to this way of life determines your eternity. You can't answer Jude's call to contend if you don't know what's at stake. It's an entire way of life, the faith. So to answer Jude's call, act. To answer Jude's call, know what's at stake. And thirdly, to answer Jude's call, discern the threat. Discern the threat. Verse 4, we have to contend for the faith because certain people have crept in unnoticed. Here we go again. Just like the other references we saw, creeping in, sneaking in, uh, doing things secretly. They are covert. They are deceitful. And they are unnoticed because they are disguised. 
They sound like Christians. They use the right terms and catchphrases like missional, authority, grace, faith, community, blessing. They use the right terminology. They use the right catchphrases. They use the right jargon. They participate in the life of the church. They'll be at the barbecue in August. They're in community groups. They are looking to influence. But they have an agenda. It might be power. It might be money. It might be sexual advantage. But they are looking for something. They have an agenda. And the mask of Christianese may hide their true identities, but God knows who they are. God knows who they are. And Jude says they were long ago designated for this condemnation. Let's talk about this, this phrase, designated for this condemnation. Doesn't so much mean that God has forced them against their will to be false teachers, or that somehow God has pre-programmed them to be false teachers. What Judas is saying is that their perverse teachings and God's judgment on them are ongoing fulfillments, that they are in a long line of plots and schemes to deceive and destroy the people of God. And that they are not bringing anything new. They are not practicing anything new in doing this. That they are doing what began long ago. They have joined a stream of rebellion that flows through history. And they are simply taking their place in God's purposes. In his redemptive history. Which includes their destruction. So they are certain people who were long ago designated for this condemnation. They have joined right in. And they are ungodly people. So as opposed to being godly, which is part of the disguise, they are truly ungodly who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And these are probably one and the same thing. The idea is that by perverting the grace of God into sensuality, by doing that, they are denying Jesus' master and as Lord. Now, this is a general summary, then, of the deceitful teaching that was undermining their faith. And this is the most that Jude says about it. This is the most detail we get about whatever this threat was, this false teaching. But it was a twisting of grace into permission to sin. And the word sensuality shows that it was mostly sexual sin. Grace, we know, is a key teaching of the gospel for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We know 
that it is because of God's grace, that it is by his grace that he has saved us because in our spiritual condition of rebellion and, and spiritual death and separation from him, we could never have done that on our own. Could have never worked our way out of it. We could have never bought our way out of it. In fact, we would have never even wanted it. That it is God's grace, his sovereign movement toward us, his kindness toward us, even though we are sinful, even though we are incapable of knowing and loving him because of our condition. This is, this is at the heart of the gospel. Christian teaching on grace becomes easily twisted into, well, if it's by grace, then it doesn't matter how you live. If I'm a sinner, the reasoning would go, if I'm a sinner and God was gracious to me and it's only by his grace, then it doesn't really matter what I do. There might even be the idea that if I try then to live a holy life, I'm living by my own power and I'm violating God's grace. We find in other places in the New Testament that false teaching that twists God's grace uh, relates to compartmentalizing the body and the soul. That the soul and the spirit are one thing, but it doesn't matter what we do with the body because it's not eternal. That's in 1 Corinthians, by the way. That was one of the Corinthian errors that Paul writes to correct. So it doesn't matter what I do with the body. It might go like this. The law belonged to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant. We're no longer under law. We're under grace. And so whereas the law was all about keeping the rules and checking off the boxes, jumping through all the right hoops, we live under grace. We don't have to do that. And so it doesn't matter where I go or what I watch or who I hang with or what I say or what I drink or what I smoke or what I do with my body. That is a false teaching. And it's been around forever. It's nothing new. It's just dressed up differently for us. So this is a, these are some examples of how grace gets twisted. And it's something like this that's going on in the churches that Jude is writing to. Perverting grace, watch, is a way of life. It is not the faith. It is an alternate way of life that masquerades as the faith. Perverting grace is a way of life that denies Jesus Christ as master and Lord. Again, this isn't an overt denial where false teachers are walking in saying, Jesus isn't Lord. He's not master. But you see, if you begin to twist grace, it is a denial that he is master and Lord. That we can't just say, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, but, uh, but I haven't submitted my life to God, and so I'm living this way. No change, no Jesus. Jesus is master and Lord. You come to him as Lord and Savior. 
So the threat we face is this twisting of any Christian teaching that violates the clear teachings of the gospel. Jude says, open your eyes. Open your eyes. See them for what they really are and what they're really saying. This is discernment. Discern the threat. The ability to distinguish truth from error. The, be, the ability to distinguish, to discern that which pleases God and that which does not. It is fundamental for each of us as a Christian to develop discernment. How do we do that? We need to know the word well. We need to know the word and we need to dig in deeper. Something beyond just the surface. But not just knowledge, not just gaining information, but why that truth tells us to live differently. It helps us to spot falsehoods. In fact, it's the only way. This is why the New Testament requires elders, pastors, teachers in the church to be able to teach and to refute error. So that's part of developing discernment, is following others who have developed discernment. So Jude says, discern the threat. Understand who these folks are. They are certain people. They've crept in. They're disguised. Now, following our text today, verse, beginning in verse 8, all the way through 16, he's going to really unmask them. But this is kind of an introduction. Discern the thread. Understand what we're talking about here. The craftiness, the deceit. And fourthly then, to answer Jude's call to contend, remember Jesus' lordship. Remember Jesus' lordship. Verse 5. As perverting grace into license denies Jesus as master and Lord, Jude reminds us that Jesus has demonstrated his lordship, that he is savior and judge. Sometimes I think we get this image in our mind that God the Father is intent on judging that God the Father looks at our sin at our lives and he's reared back and Jesus the Son walks in and goes, whoa, 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 wait, Father. You know, remember I, I died and I covered the sin and they belong to us and, and that the Father goes, yeah, right, okay. You know, yeah, Son, you intervened here. God the Father is the, the, the God who is portrayed in the Old Testament. He's the one who gave the law, and he's the one who commanded the annihilation of, of pagan, idolatrous nations. He's the one who judged sinners. The problem is, it is the Father who sent the Son. It is the Father who has loved us and sent the Son. 
The Son also loves us. But just as the Father also deals with sin, so the Son does. Judgment, in fact, all judgment is given to the Son, to Jesus. Jesus himself said this point blank in John chapter 5, verse 22. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. So to have this image in our head that God is this, the Father is the terrifying, angry Father who's reared back to judge us, and Jesus is the one who loves us, this is just a failure in our humanity and our frailty. This is part of understanding truth, part of what has been delivered to us. That is not how we understand the Trinity. The Father and the Son both love us. The Father and the Son both judge sin. And the actual execution of the judgment has been given to the Son. And so Jude reminds us, this is his reminder. It's rather remarkable because he points to three events in the Old Testament as proof that Jesus is master and Lord and that as he saves, he also judges. Before Jesus was ever the son of man born incarnate, Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, and what he's saying is you've heard this before. <laughs> I've told you this before, but you need a reminder and how to apply it now in this situation. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, God will not be violated. God will not be deceived. God is not idle or slack He gives us these three proofs then. You might say that, and again, Jesus is the subject here. Whenever the triune God acts, any member of the Trinity can be said to have acted. And the first event he points to is the deliverance from Egypt, the Exodus. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. It was Jesus who sent the plagues. It was Jesus who parted the Red Sea. It was Jesus who destroyed the Egyptian army. It was Jesus who led the people out of Egypt as pillars of smoke and fire in the wilderness. When he says once saved, that's what he's talking about. He's looking at that whole event Jesus once saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Jesus delivered them. But Jude's real point is found in the words once saved, but afterwards destroyed. Afterward destroyed. Why? Because they didn't believe. What do you mean? Didn't they put the blood on their doorposts? When the, the angel of death passed over the land, then they actually gather up their stuff and follow Moses. Even with the Egyptian army hot on their tail, they followed Moses right through the parted Red Sea. Jude says they didn't believe. 
They could do all of those things and not really have faith. The very generation that experienced the exodus, the signs, the wonders of being delivered out of Egypt, that very same generation never entered the land, the promised land. They all died in the wilderness with a couple of exceptions. Almost every single one of them died. Don't miss Jude's point. Jesus is both savior and judge. And just because someone participates with God's people, just because someone experiences the blessings of this family and this fellowship does not mean they truly belong necessarily. That someone can do all of this and still not really believe. Jude's making the point, right? They're false teachers. They're ones among you. And some of you will fall victim if you don't act, if you don't contend for the faith, if you don't know what's at stake. So his first example then is the people of Israel being let out of the land of Egypt. Just because they made it out of Egypt didn't mean they made it to the promised land. Secondly, he points to some angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Again, Jesus is credited with this execution of judgment. The angels he refers to, I, th I think it's pretty clear, are the angels of Genesis chapter 6. There they're referred to as the sons of God. These are angels who cohabitated with women. Uh, if you want to look at 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, you'll see that the references are very similar. He confirms this. And so this is a group of angels, a, sp a specialized group that rebelled against God and they are now kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of, the great, of that great day. And their violation was to leave their proper place, their proper dwelling. They had certain boundaries as angels. They transgressed them. And Judas saying that false teachers like these angels have left their proper dwelling. They have usurped authority that is not theirs. That is, they have rebelled against, they have transgressed the boundaries of their created existence. And these angels that were privileged beings in God's order, in his universe, are judged for it. And again, Jesus, Jesus is credited with keeping them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So someday they will, they will never know that freedom. They will never know freedom again. Thirdly, he points to the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, that's, he's talking about homosexuality there, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Again, Jude implies that Jesus destroyed these cities for their rebellion, and he highlights their sexual perversions as the cause. And I think Jude is paralleling that sin with the false teacher's sin, the perversions of grace, and the judgment that they face. And you notice here that the fire that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and these other cities on the plain there, that they experience, Genesis 19, if you want to read the account, that that fire was eternal fire. I don't know if he's talking about the quality of it because it came from God. It wasn't lava out of some volcano, it was fire from heaven, that the quality of that fire was eternal fire, or if he's saying that as that fire came, what it did was in its judgment is commit all of those consumed by it, by God's righteous judgment, to an eternal fire. And that though they were judged at a point in history, what it catapulted those societies, those cities and cultures into was an eternal judgment that they still experience to this day. That's the kind of frightening picture that we in our modernized, cushy American culture, we just don't have a category for that anymore. Our lives are so... Easy that we just don't even, we don't even, we look at that and we go, well, what does that mean? And we as the church in some ways have capitulated to that kind of ease and comfort. We don't preach this stuff anymore because it sounds so outlandish. And hey, we don't want to scare people into the kingdom. Jesus scared people into the kingdom. Fear of God's judgment is a legitimate reason to bow the knee to Jesus and trust him. So Jude is saying, you better understand that these false teachers are facing that kind of judgment. And those who follow them into that error, who leave the faith, face the same judgment. They face the same judgment, and it's an eternal one. And if you think Jude is vivid here, he just gets more vivid in the next passage. So listen, we are called to contend, right? God has called us to contend. This is no time to be naive. This is not a time for apathy, because the faith is at stake. The gospel is at stake. Eternity is at stake. So develop discernment. Discern the threat. And that begins with remembering that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. Remember that the, the Jesus who saves is the Jesus who destroys. He is master and Lord. And to tame him, to domesticate him, is to buy into an untruth, a false teaching. He is master and Lord. Let's pray.
Lord, these are hard words in some ways. They don't fit our, our desire for everything to be um, cushy, acceptable, um, relative. But there is real judgment. And we ask this morning that you would help us to be urgent. Not fearful, not cowering, not debilitated and depressed and overwhelmed, but Lord, to be urgent. And Lord, that you would help us to be discerning, that you would grant us discernment. We ask for that today, that you would help our discernment by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us to recognize truth and error, to rely upon the written scriptures as the faith that is once for all delivered to us, the saints, that it is complete, it is sufficient. Grant us discernment and urgency. Lord, we know that you are faithful that there is nothing that slips by you, that there is nothing that slips out of your hands. And Lord Jesus, you have loved us and saved us, and yet we also know, we even think of, of John's vision of you in the book of Revelation, your face light like the sun, feet blazing as bronze, a terrifying image and a wonderful image that makes people, even the Apostle John, fall on our faces as though dead. Lord, we praise you this morning and we acknowledge you as Lord and Master and that you would be pleased to convict and to lovingly open up hearts and and spiritual eyes to see and understand who you are and what's at stake in eternity. Only you can do that in the end. We love you. Thank you for bringing us together as a church. We say all of these things and make all of these requests because you have called upon us as your own. In your name we say, amen.